I suppose you know what chapter to turn to. Mark, the gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. Today we'll finish up this particular chapter. You notice the next, cha- the next chapter begins with the triumphal entry. As we've walked through the last few weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we've been struck many times with just how much the disciples did not understand. They didn't get what Jesus taught them about salvation after the encounter uh, with the rich young ruler. Remember the question they asked? Then they asked, then who can be saved? In chapter 10, verse 26. And what did Jesus answer? He answered, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Then Peter asked a question that showed how much they had really missed the point. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. In Matthew's parallel account, he records the question that followed that statement. See, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, what then will we have? What then will we have? In Mark chapter 10, we recognize that it's actually a progression of the things that the disciples did not yet get. Jesus went with Peter's question, this last one, and taught them that any cost, any cost of following him would be so worth it. But he finished the lesson with the statement, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus knew, of course, that one of the biggest things his disciples didn't get was the nature of true greatness. They were focused on the sacrifices that they had made to follow Jesus and the expectations of being his right-hand men when Jesus established his kingdom by overthrowing Roman rule. They expected more immediate rewards. They expected more immediate glory. They expected more immediate power. And they still didn't get what Jesus said about what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And interestingly, there is no recorded response from the disciples after this third explanation that Jesus gives of what's right around the corner. We have a saying in English, and that is the silence is deafening. And this is one of those places. The disciples' minds were fixated on the coming showdown in Jerusalem, which they were now approaching. They were on the hand, one hand scared to death, and on the other hand, they were allowing themselves, they were really forcing themselves to see the only solution that would keep their expectations alive. And what was that? They were thinking 
and hoping that the Messiah, who they did believe Jesus, that's who he was, would use his power to overthrow Roman rule and establish his own kingdom right then. Now, we all have got to realize that they held on to this expectation even though it was not what Jesus had just said. And every one of us can identify having the exact same attitude somewhere, sometime, maybe more than we'd ever want to admit. And last week, in verses 35 through 45, the disciples' misunderstanding and selfishness just couldn't stay hidden or silent any longer. What's in the heart ends up coming out, and this was a great illustration of that. As James and John asked Jesus to place them or to sit them one on Jesus' right hand and the other on Jesus' left hand in his kingdom, in his glory. Wow. Pride and selfish ambition just kind of exploded there in this scene, in this request. And guess what? Everyone with him heard it. And this is when Jesus, once again literally launches into another lesson on what true greatness is and is not. The disciples just didn't get it yet. Well, with all this context in mind, our passage today in verses 46 through 52 really does provide an incredible illustration of another thing the disciples just didn't get. Which is so true, not only of everyone, but of them. I hope you see this clearly. The message basically is everyone is in a spiritually blind condition. You see... The blind man, Bartimaeus, represents us. That we're all spiritually blind. We don't see spiritual matters as we should. And we are spiritual beggars. We have no hope of improving our condition. The crowd won't help us either because they are also spiritually blind. They push us aside, telling us to be quiet and to get out of the way. Which, if you've already looked at this passage, is exactly what we're going to read in just a second. In other words, we have only one hope. That Jesus might be merciful to us. All we can do is to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me as the blind man did. No deals, no bartering, no promises, only one. Cry out for mercy. Jesus' mercy. But that's precisely why Jesus came, isn't it? To have mercy, to serve rather than to be served. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we ask for mercy, Jesus gives it. He does something else too. He opens our eyes to see him as he is so we can tell others about him and what he's done to be our Savior. If you're able, would you please stand as I read now Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Mark 10, beginning at verse 46. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Now there are a few textual questions we need to answer first. Most of you know what that means. In other words, there are three gospel accounts that have this story. It's very, very close. But there are some things that are mentioned in one that are, that are not mentioned in another that we need to clear up so that when you get excited and read Matthew and Luke's version, you won't all of a sudden go, well, why didn't he explain this part? What are they? There's basically two. In Luke's parallel account of this, which is in Luke chapter 18, Jesus, we read, drew near to Jericho. And that means coming into Jericho when all this happened. In our text, Jesus is leaving Jericho. And that's what Matthew says as well. Got it? We don't need to explain this, right? You've already figured this out. There are several explanations. None of the explanations are really conclusive, but this should not be a problem. The best is that Matthew and Mark refer to the ruins of Old Testament Jericho, which are about a mile away from the newer town of Jericho built by Herod the Great. So this encounter may have happened as Jesus was leaving the old city of Jericho and entering the new city of Jericho. No problem. 
The second textual question, in Matthew's account, we read about two blind men. While Mark and Luke only mention one. And Mark identifies the one as Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Now, this is no problem either. Bartimaeus was evidently the spokesman for the two. And it's possible that he is singled out like this. Actually, it's very possible. Because he later he became highly respected in the early church and well known to Mark and his readers, which would account for why Mark gives his name and a little more information. In other words, this would be like us saying, and do you know if we were writing our church, we're writing for people we know. And do you know who one of those blind men was? Bartimaeus, our dear friend and brother in Christ. Okay, now, something about Jericho. Jericho was an, is an oasis in the surrounding barren wilderness around the Dead Sea. Um, if you've been to Israel, everyone goes from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea, down literally, through the most barren countryside I've ever seen in my life. I mean, there is nothing. And off to the north a little bit, as you go straight east from Jerusalem, is Jericho, and it is an oasis, which helps explain why Herod built a palace there. It had fresh water, trees, crops, figs, citrus, all sorts of fruits. Its nickname was the City of Palms. And as I mentioned, Harris had a winter palace there in a fort. The historian Josephus, who's very reliable, writes that it could be snowing in Jerusalem. I know that's hard to picture, just like people say, it snows in Texas. It happens. It could be snowing in Jerusalem and in Jericho, which was only 14 miles to the east, it would be warm. What about the state of blind people in New Testament Israel. We need to mention some things here just to understand why this blind beggar was where he was and what was the attitude of the people, the culture. Well, blindness was so very common in the Middle East. The people that were blind gravitated to the cities were most kept alive by begging. They, there were many around Jericho because of the availability of balsam, which came from some of the trees there and plants. It's a, and there's many uses for this particular ingredient, but it can be made into a soothing ointment, and it was used for certain medical conditions and for cosmetic preparation. So you can see why there, Jericho was known for having lots of blind people congregate there. The most strategic place for a beggar would be where? Outside the city gates. You know why? 
because travelers usually had more money on them than the people inside the city. Very simple reasons. Well, let's go through the account. There were many people on their way to Jerusalem at this time. Why? Because the Passover was coming. So the roads were full. And along with Jesus and disciples, we read in our passage in verse 46 that there was a great crowd. This was the ancient version of a blocked freeway, a bumper-to-bumper freeway kind of situation. Luke's account tells us that when the blind man heard all the commotion of the crowd going by him, quote, he inquired what this meant. In other words, there was more commotion than normal. The answer from some of the crowd was, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, in Luke 19, verse 37. Immediately, Bartimaeus began to cry out, Say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is an anguished cry, an anguished shout, and it was full of desperation. Why? Because the last possible hope that Bartimaeus would ever have was walking right by him and would soon be gone. And he knew that. So he shouted with everything he had. He did not care who else heard or what anybody else thought. And many rebuked him, we read, telling him to be silent. But what did he do? I love this part. But he cried out all the more. And that all the more is in all three gospel accounts. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a distinct messianic title. During Christ's ministry on this earth, Son of David and Messiah actually became synonyms. So we know that Bartimaeus had to have already heard about Jesus. He may not be able to see, but we all know that when one faculty is gone, some others make up for it. He had heard. And while he probably didn't fully appreciate the spiritual character of Jesus' Messiahship, he was among the few who were able to give a better answer to Jesus' question than his own disciples did. Back in chapter 8, 28, remember when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Peter did answer it, and all the guys agreed with him. But we see here Bartimaeus using the title Son of David. Exciting. He asked for mercy. Because he knew who Jesus was. You don't ask mercy from somebody who doesn't even know what your problem is. You don't ask mercy from someone who is not equipped to meet your need. He knew who Jesus was. He recognized Jesus' Messiahship 
And what else? What kind of stories did this guy hear? Stories about what? What were the people talking about? Not just his teaching, but the healings that he had done. Supernatural healings against all nature. Therefore, he knew Jesus' Messiahship and his supernatural power to heal. Notice that he did not demand mercy. But he did loudly, very loudly, and humbly ask for it. Despite his great need, he knew that he deserved nothing. That's what mercy is. If you demand mercy, you're not asking for mercy. You're asking for a favor or something you think you deserve. If you're asking for mercy, you realize what? That you don't deserve it. He knew he deserved nothing from the son of David and that only Jesus' mercy and grace could help him. While this man asked for mercy, the crowd only saw him as what? an annoyance, an intrusion, a piece of filth on the side of the road. But the crowd could not and did not deter him. So the big question is that we all know the answer. Who was really blind here? And that should make us smile. It should fill us with hope. Isn't it remarkable that our Savior and Lord stopped right then and there and he told his men to call Bartimaeus to him. And Jesus stopped, we read, and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, and Mark's the only one who records this, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. That just should send shivers down your spine. This is absolutely incredible. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Yeah, I guess so. Obviously, he probably had somebody shooting in the right direction. He was blind, but man, he did not hesitate. At this point, let me ask you another question that crossed my mind this week and made me sit back and smile a whole lot. This helps you get the big picture, I hope. Remember that Mark, and we haven't mentioned this in quite a while, Mark's account is based on the eyewitness reports of which disciple? Peter. So, just for a second, can you hear Peter telling this story to Mark? Sometime after Jesus' resurrection, obviously. And God using this The Holy Spirit's inspiration as part of this account. 
Would Peter's account be boring? Would you fall asleep during it? This is just pictures the excitement of knowing that Jesus did accomplish what he set out to do. This would communicate what? The praise and the glory that we give our Savior. You know, we mentioned it didn't take any time at all for Bartimaeus to respond to the call to come to Jesus. Is that normal? There are so many very, very encouraging things here in this passage. Jesus tenderly asked another question. What do you want me to do for you? We've seen him ask this before. And it's always to help the person who's asking understand their true need and who he is. And this is nothing but an obvious display of Jesus' compassion. He is on his way to Jerusalem, chapter 11, verse 1. Next verse in the, in, for next week. And he's being followed by a bunch of disciples who still had delusions of grandeur. And Jesus, instead of being consumed with his own schedule and what was ahead, are we all there? That's almost every one of us. He stopped. No doubt the disciples would one day look back on the healing in Jericho, on all his other acts of mercy, and realize, which is part of what I meant by asking the question about Peter telling Mark this story. And what were they realizing and glorying in then? That Jesus, their Lord, was never too preoccupied to be compassionate. He was never in too much of a hurry to deal with the afflicted. He was never in too much agony himself to be insensitive to the agony of others. And will he prove that on the cross? Yes, even on the cross. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. You know what Matthew says here that Mark doesn't have? And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. I don't know if there's... Too many more beautiful pictures than what we're reading right here. Especially in the context of him being almost to Jerusalem. 14 miles away at the most. And he knew what was coming in the next week. It was all coming to a head. The cross was around the corner. We also need to think about several things. Jesus' miracles were always complete. And usually they were instantaneous 
and they defied natural explanation. Is that true of, quote, faith healers in our day? Obviously not. Most most self-proclaimed faith healers down through history even, and especially in our day, there's a marked absence of restoring sight and raising the dead. Why do you think that's so? Where is the person whose eyes are permanently damaged or not even there, practically speaking, because they've been blind since birth? Where is that person who has regained his sight by the laying on of a faith healer's hands? Where are they? We noted at the beginning this morning that Bartimaeus illustrated a spiritually blind condition. Did Bartimaeus end up spiritually seeing, or was this only a physical healing? We know that the songs we sang this morning went parallel to the message, What do you think? There is plenty of evidence here that shows that this man's desire for the spiritual was as great or greater than the physical. First of all, after Jesus restored his sight, he followed it. He followed Jesus. He didn't just get his sight back and go, oh, great, I'm through with it. Luke adds that he followed Christ glorifying God. In Luke 18.43. And our Mark passage says that Jesus told him, this is the clincher, by the way, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Made well here can refer to any kind of rescue or deliverance or physical healing or spiritual salvation. How about all of the above? We also need to recognize that faith, uh, this is something we don't think about very much. Faith was not a requirement for Jesus' healings. What? Well, just think about how many people that he healed at the request of someone else. Like the centurion who pleaded for the healing of his paralyzed servant. Or the infants he healed and those he raised from the dead obviously were not able to exercise any kind of faith. So does everybody understand that? That rocks some people. So while some were healed without faith physically, no one in the New Testament was saved without faith. Jesus healed and he saved Bartimaeus who demonstrated faith in the Lord that Jesus mentions specifically, which should be the end of the discussion. Not only does this physical healing draw us to see Christ, the Messiah, and the power of his person, 
But the physical healing is also symbolic, which I hope we all get. This, this one is a picture of Christ's immeasurably more wonderful healing of spiritual blindness. I am constantly amazed as we go through this gospel and any of the gospels especially in how Jesus uses the circumstances that he's in to teach the exact lesson that the people there and us need to hear. The contrast that he draws between the rich and the poor the physically deformed and the well, the people who are lording it over others and the slaves and the servants, constantly he's showing us what really matters is right here in our hearts and who we really know, not what our words just say, but who we really know. And this is one of the primary places, I think, in the New Testament that really makes this really, really clear. So, will the disciples ever get the vitally important lessons that we've seen just in this chapter? The nature of salvation? Impossible with man? Not with God. Their characteristics of Christ's kingdom? Greatness is what? Being a servant of all. Who was the example, Jesus himself. He taught it first. He demonstrated it during his ministry, especially on the cross. You couldn't have a greater example. He is the example. We can't pay for people's sin, but the example. The sending of the Holy Spirit. The care. We're the bride Does our grim care for us? Oh, yeah. And lastly, the desperate spiritual condition of every man and woman, spiritually blind, don't deserve anything, are beggars. Well, these guys would get it. As... God opened their eyes to see the glories, the details, the implications, the applications of Jesus' sacrificial atonement for all those he came to save. No matter what's going on with you today, and we know there's a lot for so many, I hope you caught that song. You notice, even so, even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Allah, Lord, we're awed by your redemptive plan in Christ your Son. Thank you for giving us the word. Thank you for the true stories, the accounts, the explanations 
the teaching, the doctrine, the songs, the confessions, the reality of people in desperate measures with sinful hearts who you bring to yourself through an atoning sacrifice that is acceptable to you. Thank you that your own son was willing to come, to live, to die, to be our groom, Thank you that we can look to you. We can pray. You are our only hope. You are a sure hope, the anchor of our soul. In you, we can find rest in the midst of travail. We can find peace in the midst of chaos because you've got us. Oh, Lord, thank you for the assurance of what it means to be in Christ. May we know you better and better by your grace and mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. Try not to get too excited by what time it is. John, in chapter 9, couldn't resist this one. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Amen. You're dismissed.